everyone, my name's uh, Liam Garvey. Good to be with you tonight. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, why don't you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to read from chapter 8 this evening. Uh, I'll just, while you're turning there, acknowledge my thanks to Peter Granger, who stepped in last week uh, to preach on 1 Corinthians 7. I didn't see 1 Corinthians 7 and think, I feel a sickie coming on. I genuinely was unwell, although when I saw it, I was quite glad. In some ways, let's be honest about it. Uh, He tackled it all in one mighty swoop. That's what a man of experience does for you. 1 Corinthians 8. We're looking in our series in 1 Corinthians, asking the question, what does a Christ-centered church look like? What does a Christ-centered church look like? And we come tonight to chapter 8, which really begins another little mini-section where Paul is dealing with the topic of idolatry. He'll be dealing with this basically over the next three chapters. But what we have in 1 Corinthians 8 is a very, very helpful chapter. Um, I've got a a picture that I want to show you on screen just before we get to reading God's Word together. Um, A guy called Brian Chappell, who's a pastor in the States and a lecturer in one of the seminaries there, um, has provided a very helpful outline of what it means to walk in Christian freedom. So when we're asking questions, how do we know how we should live in this world as Christians? I'm really glad that in a world that turns to tea leaves and horoscopes and things like that, that we have the the Bible, the the clear teaching of God who has revealed his authoritative, sufficient, clear words for our understanding. And we know that when we open up our Bibles, we can turn to certain passages and really the commands are crystal clear. Do not murder. But then at other times when we turn to other passages in the Bible, or or maybe we're experiencing something in our own lives, we're thinking, well, what does the Bible say about this thing? Although there may not be one particular clear command explicitly stated, there is surely, truly, a governing principle which helps us make decisions. So what Brian Chappell does for us is that in the realm of Christian decision-making, what we should do is... Uh, walk in Christian freedom within the bo- on the boundaries, if you like, of having two fences either side. On the one side, honor God's authority. And he would say that pertains to seek first his kingdom. And on the other side, honor God's standards uh, and seek his righteousness, in other words. Knowing that if you, you will sin if you, A, usurp his authority and try and rule your own life the way that you want to live it, and dismissing God's authority over your own life, or you will sin off the other side, if you like, on the diagram, by just being plainly disobedient to his rules. Now, I think that's a really helpful thing for us to consider when it comes to decision-making. That's a wee Christian there, by the way, at the front. Uh, he can walk in Christian freedom as he, if he keeps himself between these two fence posts, if you like. These two fences in this Christian life. Honor God's authority. Honor God's standards. And within those boundaries, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Well, I think there's something missing from that, actually. I think that's really helpful, but there is something that's missing from that. And what 1 Corinthians 8 does for us is Paul introduces a category that is essential for us to take into account. We've been thinking this morning about our distinctiveness as a community of of salt and light. Well, tonight we're thinking about another element of our distinctiveness 
as a group of Christians, as a local church. And that is by our love for one another. By our careful consideration of one another, we magnify Christ and we look out for each other. So if you click the next one on, look at that. That's a little local church just turned up at the end of the catwalk. Isn't that great? So these are the things that we need to be taking into consideration tonight. That actually we don't make decisions just based on our own like we're some kind of Lone Ranger Christians where we just want to honor God's standards and honor his authority. Yes, we want to do those things. But we must take care to make sure that the decisions that we make, even within the boundaries of Christian freedom, are made with careful consideration of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope this will be made clear for us. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 8 and read from verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in all the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. And, uh, and the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. But... Not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such foods, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? And this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Amen. This is God's word. So some of you are sitting there thinking, will I ever be able to get a takeaway ever again? Are you? No? Let me introduce you to John and Mike. John and Mike, like many young men their age, uh, they live for the weekend. They'd be out in the town every Friday and Saturday night. They weren't Christians. Where they would drink with friends. They would dance until the small hours. Within a couple weeks of each other, they become Christians. John chooses to immediately turn his back on the old way of life. He gave up drinking altogether. He steers clear of pubs and clubs. 
he feels that the temptations of the old life are strong and he doesn't want to fall into sin. He loves Jesus. Mike is also a changed man since his conversion. He doesn't get drunk or pick up girls and things like that like he used to. But he still chooses to go out to the pub with his friends. A lot of the time he takes the car so that he drives and takes his mates home and so on. But sometimes he won't. Sometimes he will have a pint with them. Here's the thing. John, the first guy, is shocked by Mike's behavior. Surely by going to these places, he is putting himself at risk of being seduced back into this old way of life. And John, well, he's trying to convince Mike that he shouldn't be touching alcohol at all. And that there are better places, surely, for hanging out with your friends if you want to share the gospel with them. The funny thing is, Mike, the second guy, is also shocked by Tom's behavior. How can he reach his friends for Christ if he is never with them? Mike often tries to convince John that there's no direct principle that demands that all Christians be teetotal. It's drunkenness that's sinful, John. Not having a pint with your mates. I've studied this hard. I know what I'm talking about. I've not restricted in this. I have got freedom to do as I choose. Who's right? John or Mike? First guy or second guy? There's nothing new with differences of opinion like theirs. I've just plucked one out for us. Many churches have different tensions within them from what you, between what you might call something of a conscience group and something of a, a freedom group. There are folks who want to set up one or two barriers and to make sure that they are not falling off either side of this walkway, if you like. There are others who feel completely free in exercising their freedom. The question is, how do we know what's right and wrong? The same kind of thing was emerging in Corinth over the matter of meat sacrificed to idols. Pagan temples in those days were like diseases or the Pizza Express, if you like, of, of what we have today. The shrines that they had basically doubled up as restaurants and they were absolutely integral to social life in a place like Corinth. And so the people who became Christians in Corinth, which was quite a conversion, by the way, you know, for going from the whole of their lives of worshipping idols through sometimes fear, through sometimes, sometimes through superstition, but to be converted to have no idols and then to worship Jesus alone was quite a thing. But these Christians remaining in their context were at times invited by their mates, come and dine in the presence of Aphrodite. And they would go into one of these kind of restaurants, if you like, that were tagged onto the side of these temples. And what was common would be that a third or maybe a chunk of the meat would be offered up and burnt to Aphrodite or another, any other god in that time. A little bit might be kept aside and given to the priests. And then the rest of it would be cooked and laid out for this feast for the table. But the food had basically been offered up to this, their, these idols before they were cooked and served. And I think what you see in Corinth is that you have similar tensions to John and Mike arising. Should Christians go to places like that? Should they eat food that's prepared by places like that? Should they ever eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? Well, in Corinth, we have a very, very strong 
this, in the Corinthian church, you have a very strong group of people who might call themselves those who are in the know. In the know. They base their decisions, their freedoms, and what they can and cannot do on knowledge. It's what they know that counts. And it's a lofty claim. We've seen it throughout the book already. They were happy, these knowledgeable guys, to eat in pagan temples. It didn't matter to them that the food had been offered up to an idol. And in verse 1, you see Paul is quoting what these Christians have been saying. We know we all possess knowledge. In other words, we know the theology of idolatry inside out. And basically you have it in verse 4 is, is what they believe. An idol an idol is nothing in all the world. They, have not, they, are, they are just made like what we saw in our Isaiah 40. Made by men, overlaid with gold, or, or even in Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, the idols of the nations, are silver and gold. Made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. Noses that cannot smell, hands that cannot feel. You get the message. They're empty things. And these guys were confident that these idols were essentially nothing. The God that these people claimed to worship did not actually exist in any form. Therefore, eating in one of these temples, if you like, was, was a matter of kind of spiritual indifference. To them, it didn't really matter. So these guys who were in the know thought they had it all figured out. They were free to eat in whatever restaurant they wanted. Some of us can fall into that same trap, thinking that we have absolute clarity on all the, some of the doctrines that we think we are, we are firmly rooted in these things. We have no issue at all with A, with B, with C. But is knowledge enough to base your decisions on? Is it simply enough just to know a doctrine and then act in accordance with it? Well, no, according to Paul. Knowing what the Bible says in a particular matter of Christian living is absolutely vital. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not the only thing to take into account when making a choice. And we see that fact proven by Paul, who doesn't attack their knowledge. In fact, we're going to see in a second, he agrees with their theology. But he hates the misuse of that knowledge. Okay, he hates the misuse of it. That's why in verse 2, Paul says that this knowledge simply puffs up. Uh, he's not saying a positive thing there. He's saying a negative thing. And this is characteristic of the Corinthian church. They're puffed up. They're overinflated, like an overinflated tire, if you like, dangerously close to blowout. We all know what it's like to talk with someone who has a big head. Uh, people who think they are so in the know that you can, you can detect the condescension in their voice. Well, knowledge has this ability to inflate its possessor because it separates him from those who do not know or provides perceived advantages over others because they don't know something that the other person knows. And Paul sees this in the Corinthians. And what he's doing before he gets into the very crux of the matter about eating in temples, he deflates them in two ways. Firstly, by introducing the most vital factor of all in Christian decision-making. Love. Love. Not knowledge. Love. 
Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up and by itself will cause destruction. It will tear down. But love builds up. And his principle here is quite, quite simple. If the head full of knowledge is not governed by a heart full of love, all you'll have is a swollen head and a tendency to sin in yourself and a tendency to act like a steamroller with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll crush them. What Paul is trying to say to them, he's trying to, he's trying to deflate them. I don't know if you've ever seen those police camera action programs here on the TV. They're mostly on ITV4, and I'm sure none of you watch things like ITV4. Um, police camera action, you often want, you have this car chase. You know, someone's stolen a car, they're driving away at reckless speeds, and then you have the police cars chasing, and you get about 10 minutes, you've had two commercial breaks and so on. Then eventually you get round to the point where they're like, ah, yep, we can't catch them. I'm not being condescending to any policeman or former policeman. They're like, we can't catch them. Apply the stinger. You're like, what's the stinger? Those of you who've seen the program know what the stinger is. This is a wee policeman who's hiding up a street. And then whenever the car that's running, driving away recklessly is coming, this guy flicks out the stinger, this kind of metal grid that stretches out with spikes on it and completely punctures all four tires. And Paul, in this passage, effectively serves to apply the stinger to their spiritual pride. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know, verse 2, as he ought to know. In other words, you guys think you're in the know. But by the fact that you think you're in the know about the things of God who is eternal and infinite and beyond man's understanding shows that you are ignorant, actually. And ignorance is not bliss in this regard. I mean, even a really knowledgeable person knows how little he or she will know. Even a really knowledgeable person knows how much he or she has yet to learn. But the Corinthians, well, they just demonstrate their ignorance. It's not a digression. Paul's making an important point here. Don't be puffed up. It's not just about knowledge in relation to your decision making. It's about love. It's about consideration of other people, i.e. not just yourself. So he serves them up in verses 4 to 6 by actually saying, okay, let's revisit this. Let's underline the truth regarding idols and meat sacrificed to them. I agree with you, verse 4. There is no God but one. All We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Everyone who knows the true and living God knows that idols have no real existence. Whether it's first century Aphrodite, back then, or many, the many and varied Hindu gods worshipped by folks here in the 21st century, they have no real existence. All sorts of human creations are dignified with the title God, or even Lord, as verse 5 tells us, but effectively, according to God's word, the Bible, they are the product of sinful human imagination. 
They have no objective reality. And maybe you're here tonight and you've, you worship one of these other gods. No doubt taken aback by a statement like that. Maybe not. Maybe you've heard that before and you're in the process of exploring this. We'd love to have a chat with you about the truth that there is no God but God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one God, the true God, is very, very real. He exists. And Paul goes on to say in verse 6, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So we see what Paul's claiming here. Everything that has been made has come from God the Father through Jesus Christ. That's quite a claim. And the Father is the one that all believers are to live for. And how did he do that? Well, only through Jesus Christ. Not through our own efforts, not through our good works. There is nothing that we can do to present ourselves to God as one that deserves his salvation. No, God has chosen that is rescue from sin. That is forgiveness for sin. And this granting of new life that that pleases him is only possible through faith. Not works, faith in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you've put your faith in him. In his blood shed on the cross. For the forgiveness of your sins and his resurrection from the dead. For your justification as the thing which makes you right with God. And don't miss the fact that before you, you have one of the strongest assertions of the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's great, but don't miss the practical application of this either, though. All of this means that the way in which the Corinthians were to deal with the problem of idolatrous sacrifices was supposed to be patterned on the love of Christ, who himself provided that perfect example of the, of the one who lived for the Father in his time here on earth. So to figure then that an idol is nothing from their understanding that there is no one, there is no God but God, was effectively, theologically, doctrinally, biblically correct. But to take that extra step to say that going to eat food in pagan temples is harmless was in fact for them very dangerous. For this puffed up group of Christians to assert Christian, assert their Christian freedom based on their knowledge alone was in fact exalting knowledge above love. They were not taking into account the collateral damage that their decisions were having on others who were perhaps less knowledgeable and that is exactly what Paul goes on to address. In verses 7 to 13 you have effectively what is a little case study where Paul presents a scenario of a young Christian who's spent his whole life perhaps in superstitious trap of idolatry in Corinth. But that's all changed now that he's become a Christian. Slowly he's learning the lessons of the Christian faith. Okay, an idol is nothing and there is no God but God. But imagine what it would have been like for that new convert to see one of the more, if you like, knowledgeable believers in the temple of Aphrodite reclining and eating before that statue. Paul's concern is that the conscience of the new believer is perhaps weak. 
and easily compromised. Maybe old ways of thinking return, though he's given things up in order to live for Christ. How confused must he be if these things seem to be fine for others to indulge in? And we get to the crux of Paul's point. No Christian should dare to compromise another Christian's conscience. No matter what we think about the triviality of the issue in question, we have to understand that the state of the Christian conscience is not trivial. The Corinthians needed to recognize that far from building up their weaker brothers and sisters in love by urging them to neglect their convictions and eat food offered to idols, they may be, in fact, destroying them and sinning in the process. You see what verse 10 says. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, wouldn't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weaker brother, for this weak brother for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Now that's fascinating. Some of these stronger, more knowledgeable brothers or sisters might have suggested that the problem lies with the weaker brothers and sisters and not with them. Maybe they should read their Bible a bit more. You know, stop sinning so much and maybe then they'll know what we know. But Paul says the problem lies with their inconsiderate, puffed up, selfish abuse of knowledge and a thoughtless concern for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's where we see again, and I hope you see this, that membership of a local body of Christ, membership of a local church, is absolutely vital. And it carries with it the responsibility to care for one another. Lovingly. Not just out of duty, but because you want to. In fact, the love that exists within the family of God is supposed to be one of the great distinguishing marks of the gospel hitting home in our heads and in our hearts to the point that it then speaks volumes for us of the love of God shown to us. So when it comes to thinking about John or Mike or the situation with the idol, I, idols in in 1 Corinthians 8, or whatever other issue is going on in your head. Our theological understanding may rightly tell us that we are free to take a particular course of action, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should follow it. Essentially, what Paul's big point in 1 Corinthians 8 is that our biblically informed freedoms must be exercised lovingly. Even if we're not falling off to the left or to the right on this diagram, these things must be exercised lovingly. And if it may compromise the faith of a weaker brother or sister, then it should necessarily be curbed. We should restrain our freedom in order to protect one another, in other words. 
We should be restrained. We should be limited. Even though we may be absolutely free to do one or two of the things that we think we can do. It's common sense, really. When you think of just applying it in a general nature. I am perfectly free to watch James Bond's Skyfall on DVD. Okay? But, would it be helpful to my four-year-old's daughter and two-year-old son for me to watch it at 10 a.m. with them sitting on the sofa beside me? Oh, I'm perfectly free to watch it. The problem is with them. They should mature (laughs) quickly. And that's nothing to do with me. Uh, Well, it is, yeah. Um, Do you see my point? Even in a natural way, we curb, I would curb my freedom because I just don't want to see them see M get shot. Do you know, I don't, you know, there are things that you just don't want people to see if they're not ready for it. It's, It's common sense. So what does this principle mean? It means that, yes, we want to walk in Christian freedom, okay? We don't want to set up any legalistic laws for anyone. We want to walk in Christian freedom. We want to, on the one side, honor God's authority, making sure that we do not usurp him as the king of our, our lives. And on the other hand, we want to make sure that we, do, we honor God's standards, that we do not rebel against him and disobey his clear teaching in Scripture. So we don't want to sin either in that way or in that way. But we need this other element. We need to recognize, we need to take care to ensure that the exercising of our Christian freedom within those bounds, that we are being sensitive to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we are not causing a weaker brother or sister to compromise their own conscience and fall into sin because of, the, the, because of our knowledge and the application of it. We need to take into consideration our other brothers and sisters and show them that we love them by curbing our freedoms. You see the practical application of this in the Apostle Paul. His concern in verse 12 is that when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, so it's it's with you, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. You sin against them, the ones for whom Christ died, as he said earlier, and you sin against Christ. So you sin even as you're exercising your Christian liberty if you cause a weaker brother or sister to sin. So Paul says in his application, verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Paul is willing, in love, to become a vegetarian so that he will not cause a weaker brother or sister to sin, so that he won't sin. That's love. That's love. What would 1 Corinthians chapter 8 say to John and Steve? Well, if Steve's conscience allows him to go to pubs and clubs, he really should not be encouraging John to go with him. 
they shouldn't really be criticizing him for not going. Maybe his conscience would be compromised if he did go. And similarly, even if John decides he's going to visit Steve one Saturday evening, Steve, love should demand that Steve would stay in and not go out. Preferring a conversation or strictly come dancing or whatever is on, on a Saturday night. Skyfall, you know? Even though there's nothing inherently sinful about going to a pub, love is more important than knowledge. Love is more important than exercising your Christian freedom. What about for us? Same principle applies, doesn't it? Christ calls each and every one of us to live a crucified life. He died for us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself up for us. How much more then should we, following the pattern of his amazing love, love our brothers and sisters? How much more seeing what Christ has given up to rescue us and give us new life in him and forgive some of the wicked and horrible things that I have done in my life and that you have done in your life so that we could know God and have fellowship with him for all eternity, rescued and redeemed from the wrath that should have been poured out on me and on you. Then shouldn't we give up those things that we feel free to do for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ? I love seeing this enacted in this church. You see it in many and various ways. The love of Christ shared in and through this fellowship, through acts of kindness done. Sure, there are things in here that you just won't see. There are decisions and, that are made in people's minds where freedom is curbed and they don't make a big deal about it. The strength of that will be evident in the end, I feel, in our relationships and the strength of our love. And the strength of our love will surely demonstrate to this world the love of God that is shown to us in Jesus Christ. That's why membership of this church is so vital. That's why taking it up a level in our love for one another is so important. That's why being accountable to one another in what we do and how we practice these doctrines, how we put them into practice and cultivate humility in life is so important. And friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I pray that you would tonight see the love of God the Father in Christ crucified. to see his amazing love displayed for sinners who had rebelled against him, who disobeyed him in every way and who usurped him and dishonored his authority in every respect. But still he came, sent his son to die on the cross for our sins that we might have life in his name.
can I encourage you to consider him, think on Christ and put your faith and trust in him. And you too can know this love. The love of the Father and the love of his people. Let's pray together.